every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde. This is the America Out Loud Network. Ah, I've got a great message for you today. I wish this were my message, but I'm just I'm just one of the people who's carrying the torch forward and and hoping to uh, to bring a little more light as as I pass it along. We're going to talk a little bit today about uh, about the duty that you and I have to help steer our course back toward reality. And I've got a couple of different examples of how we have departed from reality and how it's it's becoming harder and harder to remain tethered to reality in the, the current situation we find ourselves in. Now, I'm going to start this at a, from kind of a, a strange approach, but if you have ever found yourself in, involved in an argument with someone over some political topic, this is a message that I hope you will find extremely useful. And it's, it's something that's become very clear to me uh, more and more over the years. That's, first of all, the necessity of standing for your principles. Maybe you feel this too, right? As, as the walls are closing in, it's like, you know, somebody's got to do something. But uh, the clarity that has come to me over the years is, you know, I've, I've, for 30 years, I have been doing everything I can to stand up for freedom and to, to be an advocate for, for liberty but I didn't always do it with an idea that, uh, you know, perhaps there was a better way to, uh, to, to do this. So I found myself spending a lot of time arguing with strangers online. Okay, that, uh, that, was, uh, that was part of it. That uh, actually just was within the last 20, 25 years. But I also found myself arguing with, uh, for instance, callers to, to my radio show. They would call in and, and, and it just became, you know, like uh, a kind of... Uh, World Wrestling Federation kind of you know, throwdown, and it makes for some great entertainment. But but here's the question that popped into my head. At some point, I realized, okay, I'm I'm getting really good at riling people up, but beyond that, what exactly am I accomplishing? You know, maybe the people who sell blood pressure medication will send me a thank you note, but I don't think so. So what I came to realize was that, look, we do need to stand for our principles. We absolutely do. And this has been a necessity in every generation of human history. But we need to do it without bringing more anger into an already volatile world. So I want to start by sharing with you an article on three ways to engage in political arguments more responsibly and constructively. And it's just just a good way to help remind you to... 
you know, when, when you have the opportunity to discuss with people, there's uh, there are productive ways of doing it. And there are ways that just amount to little more than guerrilla domination. Right. You're just going to puff up and beat your chest. And basically, uh, this discussion's not over until one of us admits defeat. Now, this is the result of a couple of writers, Julian Adorney and Mark Johnson, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. And they say political tensions in the United States are at an all-time high. A recent poll found that 84% of Trump supporters see Democrats as representing a clear and present danger to American democracy. Now, 80% of Biden supporters said the very same thing about Republicans. As David French aptly puts it, the combination of malice and misinformation is driving American polarization to a fever pitch. What can we do to bring tensions down a notch while still advocating for the political ideals that we cherish? Well, when we look at what these two writers are offering, one is a coach who spent two decades working with folks on every side of the political spectrum. The other is a former political op-ed writer who managed to maintain close relationships with family and friends who thought his views on government were insane. But between the two of them, they have three ideas to present. I think these are very constructive ideas that are, are worthy of your consideration. The first one is to cultivate self-awareness. Now, look, we all like to think that we're very open-minded on every single issue. We see ourselves as dispassionate seekers of truth, completely open to a rational critique of our cherished beliefs. But the truth, I think you might suspect, is more complex As social psychologist Jonathan Haidt points out in his book, The Righteous Mind, we tend to choose our political beliefs emotionally and then try to justify them logically. Now, Haidt uses the metaphor of an elephant and a rider. The elephant chooses which way to lean, for instance, supporting gun control for emotional reasons. Then the rider is tasked with justifying that leaning using logic and evidence. Now, the key here is, is that the writer isn't looking for the truth. They're looking for evidence to support the elephant's decisions. So their arguments are post hoc justifications, similar to how a president's press secretary reflexively defends his actions. And this explains why you've probably been in arguments with people who've clung to their beliefs even after you rebutted their logical claims. But the takeaway here is for most people, the beliefs sway the evidence they see, not vice versa. As Drew Weston, professor of psychology and psychiatry at Emory University and author of The Political Brain, puts it, the last thing to do is to try to argue someone out of a belief when they're strongly committed to it emotionally. Because what makes it so strong is the emotion attached to it, not the facts or arguments that support it. So reaching a place where our elephant no longer leans toward any particular political camp and we're free to dispassionately evaluate every issue on its merits, that's probably not realistic for most of us. Instead, what we can do is recognize where our elephant is open to being persuaded and where it isn't. For instance, if you work for a pro-gun control advocacy group, you're probably not going to be persuaded by anti-gun control arguments, no matter how they're made. Your elephant isn't going to lean in a direction that puts your job in jeopardy. And that's fine. But you'll be doing yourself and the people you talk politics with a big favor if you admit that up front. And the same is true if you're on the other side of the debate. So by leading with the honesty and humility to own your own biases, you can encourage your political opponents to lower their walls in return. 
That can diffuse tension on all sides and turn a potentially rancorous political disagreement into a genuine discussion. Secondly, they recommend, remember, hurting people hurt people. Now, most of us have found ourselves in political firefights on social media. And when one of the authors here, Julian, was a political commentator, he was called things like sociopath, moron, a corporate shill with the blood of children on his hands. Now, when we're attacked online, our first instinct is to fight back. But what if we responded not with anger, but with pity? What if we saw the folks telling us to die on Reddit, not as a mob that needed to be beat back, but as people in intense pain who are looking for an outlet? In an article in Psychology Today, Dr. Grant Hillary Brenner wrote, Well, trolls, to use a dehumanizing term, may be more likely to be manipulative, sadistic, and psychopathic. They may also be suffering, feeling lonely and isolated with no clear socially acceptable outlets. To put this another way, yelling at strangers online is not the mark of a person who is living their best life. Now, that doesn't mean we should excuse folks online who flame us, but cultivating a sense of their underlying pain can help us respond with empathy or even pity rather than feeling like we need to fight fire with fire. I want to give you a personal example of how I saw this in action. A few years ago, I attended a Better Angels workshop. And this is, a, this is an interesting organization in that it brings together people from very different points of views. In fact, view. In fact the, the panel that I was a part of had six people who identified as strong conservatives. I was on that side. And there were six people who identified as strong liberals. Now, I know labels are kind of ineffective, but even within the conservatives, we didn't all agree with each other. Even the liberals didn't all agree with each other. But basically, between those two sides, they brought 12 of us together, and we spent the day in a workshop learning to hear one another. The cardinal rule, this was the prime directive, you know, to borrow some Star Trek parlance, was you cannot try to change anyone's mind. Now, think about having to tr- trying to have a discussion without trying to change someone's mind. And when someone would be speaking, for instance, they would ask us, you know, explain how you think other people see your side or your stance on a given issue. And as we would try to explain it, or as, as the other side would try to explain it, it was crazy how easy it was to lapse into, I'm immediately trying to come up with rebuttal points. I'm trying to think, how would I argue against this? And it's, it's like a conditioned thing. We've trained ourselves to do this. I'm not so much listening to what they have to say as trying to think, how can I refute that? But when you take the opportunity off the table to try to change someone's mind, and you really just have to listen to them, it's kind of an interesting situation. You learn a whole lot more about where they're actually coming from. One of the most productive questions that we were able to ask one another, and, and it had to be a question, it couldn't be a lecture, since we know that abortion is murder, blah, 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 here's my question. You couldn't, you know, lead them into it with some kind of soliloquy about, here's where I stand, and this is supposed to change their mind. You had to ask them something sincerely, trying to figure out what, you know, what, what exactly is, is their point of view. So, uh, for instance, uh, one of the questions that the, the liberal side asked to the conservative sides is, in what way does uh, the LGBT community harm you? Now, think about how would you answer that? I mean, come on, every one of us knows someone who is a member of the LGBT community. And 
one of the guys who was participating with our group, a police officer, a former police officer by the name of Eric Mutsos, spoke up and said, actually, I can answer that question. And his story was that uh, he was a Salt Lake City police, uh, he was a motorcycle police officer. And part of what they would do is they would train very extensively on their motorcycles, and sometimes they would ride in parades. In other words, the the police motorcycle squad would go out there and perform precision maneuvers in the parades. Well, Salt Lake has a great big gay pride parade every June. And Eric was assigned to uh, perform in that parade on his police motorcycle. And Eric said, I don't want to appear to be giving support to a, a parade that I really wouldn't normally be a part of. Now, he says, I'm willing to work. I'm willing to do security. He tried to change you know, assignments with another officer. But because he expressed that he felt uncomfortable actually being a part of the parade, that he felt that would send a message about him that his conscience just could not square with, he was attacked. And he was attacked not just by some members of the LGBT community, but he was attacked by his higher-ups. He was attacked by the press. He was attacked by politicians and ultimately forced out of his job, which he had been an exemplary officer. But he was accused of being biased. He was accused of being a hater. And he was accused of being a bigot. And I remember the looks on the, on the faces of, of these, uh, these six you know, self-identified liberals as he explained how that, that rigid, dogmatic approach to uh, diversity in the name of you know, LGBTQ rights had actually been wielded as a weapon against him. And to a person, every one of them said, that's not right. That's not right that you should have been pushed out of your job for that. Because it was very clear. He was not trying to make a stand. You know, I'm going to tell you how wrong gay people are. He was simply asserting his conscience, saying, by participating in a gay pride parade, I feel as though I am crossing a line that sends a message about me that is not true. And it was very interesting to to see their reaction and to see that. And some of these folks were very activist. I mean, they they were, you know, woke would, would be an understatement. But they were also very sympathetic because they recognized there was legitimate pain behind Eric's stance for for his own personal conscience and his own morality. Now, by the same token, we had the opportunity to ask some of the members of this this group, um, you know, what have you experienced that caused you to think or to believe the way that you believe? And, and some of this came back to, you know, I'm going to I'm going to return to the LGBT, you know, scenario here. There was a pastor, a very, very liberal pastor who uh, talked about um, as, as he was, uh, I, I think, as, as he was growing up in his church, which was a fairly conservative church. There was uh, a chorister and she was a closeted lesbian. Nobody knew but one day she had confided in him that, in fact, she was, uh, you know, a, a lesbian and was in a long-term committed relationship with another woman. Something she had to keep absolutely secret because it would have absolutely, you know, caused her to be, you know, shown the door. And one day he was sitting there listening to some of the other um, church leaders, some of the other pastors. And they were talking about, and, and perhaps they were joking, or maybe they are just being kind of casual, but they were talking about how, you know, these sodomites are going to rot in hell and blah, blah, blah. And he thought, they have no idea that what they're joking about here or what they're talking about 
would include this incredibly beloved chorister who had had been a lifelong member of their congregation and and was was considered you know one of the finest people that any of them knew they didn't even know that they were they were unwittingly condemning her through their discussion so there was legitimate pain behind his stance for why he was such a, a, a vociferous advocate for lgbt rights now, again, I'm not trying to play out the, the morality for or against LGBT. I'm just, what I'm trying to point out here is when people stopped trying to, uh, to lash out in, in pain, when they recognized that there was legitimate pain behind a lot of the stances that people have taken, suddenly it's a lot easier to, to recognize that the person who may be out there, you know, advocating and, and being, um, you know, obnoxious in our view because they're, they're being an activist, Maybe there's something that's motivating them that we didn't understand. All I know is I came away from that, uh, that, that group with, with a real appreciation for the fact that there are good people, even people who strongly see things uh, different from me. And this, is, this brings us to the third point in ways to engage in political arguments more responsibly and constructively, and that is prioritize relationships over politics. Now, here the authors say, when we're discussing politics, it can be helpful to put the conversation into context. Even if you could change your friend or family member's mind on an issue, the odds of that mattering in an election are unbelievably minute. For instance, in the 2020 presidential election, even the closest swing state, Georgia, was decided by a margin of nearly 12,000 votes. Now, what that means is, even if you could push your liberal aunt into voting for Trump instead of Biden, it really wouldn't actually have made a difference. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't vote, but rather you can breathe a sigh of relief knowing the fate of the world does not hinge on your ability to convince your aunt that gun control doesn't work. Now, what could you realistically achieve in a conversation with a family member who disagrees with you? You could build a shared respect for each other's beliefs. You could bond over points of commonality and shared love for people and country. You could use the conversation to bring yourself a little closer and to create a moment of genuine connection in both of your lives. And here's the key. You don't have to agree. You don't have to. That's worth a lot more than yet another conversation that just gets both of your backs up. So the conclusion that Mark Johnson and Julian Adorney came to is to fix the world, we must fix ourselves. When strife between partisans is so intense that large numbers of Republicans and Democrats say political violence might be justified, it's pretty easy to get dismayed. But if you want to tamp down the political flames, that starts with each one of us. And we have to cultivate personal responsibility for how we talk to one another about politics. We must develop the humility to admit our own biases and a genuine empathy for our fellow humans. And I love the note that they end this on. They say, to fix the blindness of a nation, it might help if we all take a hard look at the log in our own eye. Right? You've heard, you've heard the parable of the moat and the beam? Well, there it is. Now, I've seen this play out in other ways as well. And I, I want to share again a personal example of this. Um, having a discussion with, uh, with a family member who was, uh, to, to say vehemently anti-Trump would be an understatement. Like saying, you know, the Arctic can be a little chilly this time of year. It, I mean, this family member was living and breathing 
hatred of Trump every single moment. And it was uh, right after the, the January 6th events of 2021. We got together for a family event, and, and this uh, family member approached me. And, and you got to understand, I am not a, a, I'm not a big Trump supporter. I did vote for him in the 2020 election because I felt that, uh, well, he was, he was the better choice than, uh, you know, President Potato Head. But I don't consider myself, you know, a fanboy. But this family member came up to me and says, well, I hope you're happy. I hope you hope you appreciate what you've caused with your support for Trump. And I was just like, wow, that was the first thing that was said. And it was like, oh, boy, here comes the fight. And and I started with, you know, a parry. You know, I said, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm not accepting guilt at this point for things that I had nothing to do with. So, you know, better luck next time. Now, that was kind of a flippant response. And and this family member persisted. And and there came a point where it was just like, oh, this is just and, and I think I actually said this does not feel like a discussion. This just feels like an argument waiting to happen. And I got to give credit. This family member actually at, at some point realized changing each other's minds wasn't really an option. And so they said, uh, look, I love you more than I hate Donald Trump. And I thought that's, that was actually, I thought, a very, a very humble thing to say even though you know there are people bro hey that's not very nice and my response was i love you more than i need to be right and with that the topic was off the table and we could get back to enjoying this family function now i don't know if that's something that would work for you and for yours but it was proof to me that uh, it can be done even with someone who is is like rabidly you know upset about something so it, it kind of brings me back to the idea of there are productive ways to try to steer people back toward reality or to help them see things that, that can bring some light and truth into their lives. But if I have learned anything in, in a long and happy career of, of arguing for the cause of freedom and arguing for those things that support freedom, it's this. You cannot change people's minds by beating them into submission. You can't do it by dominating and and forcing someone to see your point of view. The most valuable advice that I have ever received and incorporated into my own life was to lose the need to win. That's hard. And I'm, I'm saying this as a reformed guy who used to sit there and argue with people on the Internet till I was blue in the face because someone's wrong. And, you know, I've got to I've got to make this point. I've got to make them admit that I'm right. When you lose the need to win, there's a couple of things that happen. First and foremost, you don't get dragged into, a, you know, guerrilla display of dominance and and, uh, you know, trying to puff up and and just out belligerent the other person it's unproductive that that does not accomplish anything it just hardens each person in their own position and if anything it will it will create long-lasting resentments and uh, maybe even a lifetime enemy if you're not careful but when you speak the truth to someone with love not with you know condescension but you speak the truth because look i sincerely want you to understand this and then let them deal with it at their own pace in other words, you're, you're planting seeds more so than just downloading the whole knowledge of the library of truth right there, you know, into their brain. <laughs> you don't want to overwhelm them. 
And if someone wants to argue, it's perfectly okay to say, you know what, this sounds more like an argument than a discussion. Let's talk another time. And you walk away. Sometimes, you know, people, when they, when they encounter truths that they're not ready to confront or to, to examine, they bump into the limits of their mental universe and they get defensive. They get violent, some of them, angry. You don't have to rise to that occasion. I can promise you this. If you speak the truth in love, take the hits, but keep on smiling, keep on loving them, and simply walk away to let them come to the knowledge of the truth at their own pace, you will be shocked how often they'll come back to you and say, I see what you were trying to say, or I agree. It happens. Try not to look too surprised and don't look smug. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy, and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you for tuning in today on the America Out Loud Network. Please pay close attention to the sponsors of this show as well as this network and do business with them. Let your dollars show that you support them and you appreciate them making it possible for you to hear, you know, sources of, of alternative information. I mean, it's what a crazy world we live in where, where speaking the truth can get you, uh, you know, in deep, deep water. 
Joe Rogan seems to know more about this than, than a lot of people right now. But let's talk about moving people back to reality and doing it in a way that uh, that doesn't constitute, uh, you know, browbeating someone into submission. One thing I wanted to, to share with you in this, uh, by the by the way, in the last segment, I shared the idea of lose the need to win. Speak the truth with love, take the hits, keep smiling, but don't try to dominate people. If you want to see minds open, I have found this to be a very effective tool for opening minds that were closed like steel traps. And I've put this to great use over the last few years, and I'm convinced there's there's legitimacy. I learned this from a guy by the name of Paul Rosenberg. And I want to share with you a column that he recently wrote. And, and this may sound... Um, this may sound like I'm just counteracting everything that, that I just advised in the last segment, but he has an article here called The Working Class is Morally Superior to the Ruling Class. And this is, this is a call to reality for you and for me, more so than uh, you know, for, for the people who are part of that uh, ruling class. Now, Paul, Ro- Paul Rosenberg says, look, I wrote this article nearly a decade ago, but I held on to it because the timing just didn't seem quite right. Now things have changed and it may do some good. So with a bit of updating, here's the article. Now he says, if you're a producer, I'm talking about you. And I'm serious about this. You are morally superior to the suits and names who order everyone around. I'm not saying you're without your flaws. He says, Lord knows we all have them. But in comparison, you are better and clearly so. If you feel good coming home from an honest day of work, if you go out of your way to help family and friends, if you like pointing at something and saying, I made that, if you care about your work as a carpenter, trucker, housewife, nurse, welder, shopkeeper, clerk, farmer, rancher, engineer, or any of a hundred other professions, you are a producer, and this is for you. Paul Rosenberg says nearly every public voice on this planet tells you that you are beneath important people, but you're not. Those voices are generated precisely by those people and those who are sucking up to them. They play a one-note symphony, and truth has no chair in their orchestra. Now, from here, he says, I was wrong about Polycraticus. And he says, isn't it silly that using a name like Polycraticus makes you sound smart? Well, Polycraticus was an important book written in 1159 by a brave man named John of Salisbury. This was the book that set up what we call the rule of law, the original version of which was far better than what passes for it today. Now, the funny thing about Salisbury's book is that it was part philosophy and part gossip. In between intellectual arguments for the rule of law, he spent a lot of pages exposing the decadence and immorality of that day's overlords, which was the royalty. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I always had guessed that John did that because gossip sells. Throw in a bunch of rich and famous secrets to get the philosophy into more hands. But he says, now that I think about it, what Salisbury did was necessary. His readers needed to know that their rulers were morally degenerate. If they had continued to assume that their leaders were morally pure, they would have continued believing that they were God-ordained and they wouldn't have placed their rulers beneath the people's law. Now, the same thing was necessary for the American Revolution to work. One of the crucial contributions to the Revolution was a sermon by a minister named Jonathan Mayhew. Mayhew explained why it was not only acceptable, but right and necessary to question the king and to examine his morality. 
According to John Adams, that sermon sparked the revolution. And Paul Rosenberg says, I think he was right. Because you can't get people, you can't get decent people to oppose something they think is sacred. So it's important to understand that rulers are not better people than you. In fact, they're worse. And please try to hold that thought. He says, there are reasons why working people don't want to consider themselves morally superior. But he says, I I don't have space to talk about that today. What matters today is that you understand this. Like it or not, the overlords are power-mad enemies of truth, and they are worse than you. More than that, the overlords believe that so long as they never admit their errors, you'll be mentally and emotionally unable to oppose them. They believe that they control everything you see and hear. More than that, they believe you are so deeply affected by guilt that they can kick you into line whenever they need to. So he says, briefly, I'm going to play like Salisbury with a few bullet points. We've learned over the past few years that the ruling class is filled with sexual predators. From Harvey Weinstein to Jeffrey Epstein to Cuomo to Clinton to Rose and a long list of others, Those at the peaks of power are not better than us. They are worse, markedly worse. Also, the ruling class lies and cheats endlessly. Now, we've known this for a long time, foolishly excusing it, rather, as politics. But he says, if you or I did that, no one would excuse it as business. They would stop dealing with us and they'd take their money elsewhere. Over the past two years, he says, we've seen almost every shred of free speech, proportion, live and let live, and a hundred other deficiencies, or decencies rather, swept away. The overlords filled the world with fear, and they dug it. They ignored democracy and ruled through executive orders. They intimidated millions at a time. They turned neighbor against neighbor and ripped families apart knowingly. Now, the overlords were wrong again and again and again. Yet they never apologized, never explained, never changed course. In fact, he says, as I edit this, they are still doubling down. Take the vaccine and you won't get COVID. Wrong. You won't spread COVID. Wrong. Masks stop COVID. Wrong. And so on. People are on their fourth shot these days and still getting COVID. Hundreds of thousands of people have been sickened or killed by their hurry-up vaccines. And COVID has affected almost everyone regardless. Yet we see more intimidation, more threats, and more insults. And all this leads to a horrifying but inescapable conclusion. We're nuts to obey these people. They lie on purpose. They jump into bed with whomever buys them a few fundraisers. They write legislation for donations. We've known this for a long time, but we haven't wanted to think about it. It calls too much into question. Now, however, it's gone too far and more of us every day are saying enough. Now, he says, I'm not advocating anything in particular, but can we start facing this like adults? Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, it sounds a little bit radical to me. He says, before anyone gets too scandalized, let me, let me quote someone who was far more radical than I've been. Here's the quote. That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Did you get that? If something is high and glorious among men, if it enjoys status, if it is an authoritative, important, and respected thing, God himself is disgusted by it. Want to take a guess at who said that? That's right. It was Jesus. 
get a concordance and look it up. And he says, lest you think I'm taking his words out of context, let me point out that Jesus begins by saying, ye are they which justify yourselves before men. Does that sound like any class of people we know? See, none of us are radical compared to the rabbi from Nazareth. And let us not forget that the God of Christians and Jews has always inclined his ear to the humble and turned his back to the mighty. I think we should start incorporating that into our daily thinking as well. So yes, Paul Rosenberg says you are morally superior to your rulers. More than that, if you intend to exist in any way that's better than own nothing and be happy, anyone unfamiliar with that should look up that term too, you need to get clear on the fact that your rulers are morally inferior to you. Again, you're not morally perfect. None of us are. But in comparison to the overlord class, you are definitely better, and it's not even close. So please, for the sake of the world, start acting like it. And I don't know about you, but that was that was like a very needed kick in the seat of the pants. Paul Rosenberg has, has written some just marvelous essays. This may be one of his finest. Now, from there, I want to shift gears and talk about how our sense of reality is being challenged to the, po- to the point that a lot of us find ourselves today actually wondering, do we live in the matrix? I've got an essay here from the Z-Man. Connecting the dots that show, yeah, we actually are experiencing something like the COVID matrix. Z-Man writes, the concept of a simulated reality or alternative reality has been popular in science fiction since the earliest days of the genre. Either the protagonist falls through a portal into an alternative reality, usually similar to his own, or he discovers that he's living in a simulated reality controlled by others. The goal in both scenarios is to discover the actual reality and who is behind the deception. Now, inevitably, that is the point of the alternative reality. The point is to deceive people so they do not notice something that is important to the deceivers. The movie The Matrix puts this to good use by having the protagonist wake up from a computer simulation to learn that he had been living in an artificial world. That world was created by the machines that had destroyed human civilization and enslaved humanity as batteries. The enduring popularity of the Matrix and its many concepts like Red Pill and Blue Pill is due to the fact that it touched on a reality of this age. That is, many people think there is something off about this world. People are trapped in hyper-reality and an ability to distinguish reality from the simulation of reality experienced online. The world of the internet and mass culture crowds out actual reality for many people. This is why, in part, we see so many people walking around staring at their mobile device rather than experiencing the world around them. So a group of people sitting at a dinner table will be sitting there staring at their phones, maybe even texting one another, because online reality feels more real to them than actual reality. Human relations have become entangled in the simulated online reality to the point where they come to define reality for people. And you see this with the intensely online left. This is a closed world that operates by its own internal logic, independent of reality. These are people who interact with other members of the subculture on platforms like Twitter. Their outside sources are blogs and news sites that cater to that subculture. A few years ago, someone tried to quantify this subculture and found it was a closed society. These people are immersed in a fantasy world of their own creation. When you examine the online left, 
you begin to see what can best be called the many false realities problem of modern technological societies. And for these people, the prospect of Hitler magically appearing to enslave humanity is more real in their daily experiences in the regular world. They're motivated to act by the imaginary things they experience online, but they remain unmoved by observable reality. Now, the Z-Man writes, the many false realities problem of modern technological societies has been brought to the fore by COVID. For most people, the virus has played no role in their life other than the disruptions to their daily life by government policy. Most people know COVID to be local politicians giving speeches about something that may not even exist while imposing restrictions that have no connection to reality. On the other hand, the people in government offices have experienced COVID as a genuine national emergency. It has been their war, not a private war, but one shared with the other people in government offices. They check numbers and listen to the latest reports from experts, and even though they are safe and warm, they are sure there's a war raging in the streets to defeat this terrible virus. Now, in the United States, this divergent reality has been made even more plain by the fact that many states did not put on the VR goggles and play COVID. Florida bypassed the mask and lockdown stuff and simply took some reasonable steps to make sure the hospitals had what they needed to treat the sick. Everyone else went about their lives as if COVID was just a bad flu season. Now, that's in stark contrast to states like California that dove headfirst into the alternative reality of the pandemic. For their political class, every day was a life-and-death struggle to save their people from the COVID monster. For the typical resident, it was one bizarre new policy after another, usually preceded by bizarre statements from politicians entirely disconnected from the reality of their constituents. Of course, many rank-and-file people happily entered the COVID matrix. Early on, there were the women yelling at people in grocery stores about being safe. They embraced the lockdowns with the enthusiasm of a gamer getting a shot at the latest release of his favorite online game. These are the people stubbornly sticking with the mask wearing after everyone else has dropped the charade. What was I reading just yesterday? I think I was reading about a a school in Virginia that was uh, threatening to suspend students for failing to wear their masks at school. Even though the mandates have all been dropped. What do you call that? Stockholm syndrome on a on a large scale? Who knows? The Z-Man says it's been tempting to explain these divergent realities over COVID as mass psychosis, cynical ploys by power-mad politicians, and cash grabs by the usual greed heads. But the better answer may be that we now live in multiple realities. Mass society, rather than fusing us into a monoculture, has balkanized us into alternative realities. And those realities provide the spiritual nourishment that consumerism cannot provide. Take this story from a writer in Quebec. He went on holiday in Florida and was nearly broken by the conflict between realities. He's a Covidian living in a place that has embraced COVID as their preferred reality. In that reality, people are falling over dead in the streets if they dare remove their mask. In his reality, everyone is frightened and dutifully following the instructions of their leaders to fight this terrible plague. And then he finds himself in Florida where no one cares about COVID. Rather than wearing masks and dousing themselves in sanitizer, people are partying and rubbing rubbing elbow, elbows rather at busy bars and clubs. 
So his wearing of three masks in public is as ridiculous as wearing an ornamental codpiece. His entire post is a long struggle to square the hyper-reality of his life in Quebec with the physical reality he experienced in Florida. Now, you'll note that his experience with actual reality did not lead him to question the false reality of his life in Quebec. In fact, you sense he's found a way to use his experience outside the simulation to prove that the simulation is real. He was happy to be home, not just for the usual reasons, but so he could get the constant reinforcement from others who prefer the simulated reality. Interestingly, his testimonial follows something closely observed in UFO cults in the book When Prophecy Fails. His return home to his preferred reality brought him to step five in the process observed in that study. When he was struggling to maintain his beliefs in the face of undeniable disconfirmation, it was the support of fellow believers that allowed him to maintain those beliefs. Now, mass technological culture is balkanizing people not along the lines of normal human identity, but along artificial lines. People are grouping into artificial constructs like pro-vaccine versus anti-vaccine. And these people riding alone in their car with three masks exist in a different reality from everyone else. Their virtual identities are as real as race, ethnicity, or religion in the real world. Now, the Z-Man says if the alternative realities were isolated from one another, it would be a good way to keep the peace. Like diversity in the real world, the closer these alternative realities come to one another, the greater the conflict. Much of what plagues the modern age is this conflict of false realities. That's kind of scary when you think about it. People are, lo- are working not from different opinions, but actually working from entirely different realities. And the Z-Man concludes by saying the writer from Quebec trusts the facts of his simulated reality more than he trusts his own eyes, which means there is no way for him to find some middle ground with the people in Florida living their reality. Play this out over every aspect of the mass culture, and it's no wonder that everyone is howling for blood. What is at stake is not the, p- the petty prizes of politics, but rather the nature of reality itself. Maybe this is one of the reasons why we're seeing such a concerted effort to shut down people who question the official reality that's being put forth by various political leaders and some of their, you know, health care and corporate cronies. I mean, for crying out loud, Joe Rogan. I mean, this this guy is a, you know, MMA commentator. He's a he's a podcast host. Comedian. TV star. It's not like he has actually gone out there and killed people, but but you hear people talking as if, well, you know, the dangerous disinformation he allows on his program is so bad that uh, that people are going to die if they hear it. But the crazy thing is, it's not Joe Rogan that's that's saying what is considered so dangerous. It's people like Dr. Peter McCullough. It's people like Dr. Robert Malone, who are extremely well-credentialed experts. Now, look, they're human. They might be wrong. But their viewpoints are far more informed than most of the sycophants in the media. And when Joe Rogan allows them to speak on his considerable platform, at last, last time I heard, I think he's enjoying about 11 million listens on average per episode. 
And I'm suspecting that uh, with, with people like Dr. McCullough and Dr. Malone, it's probably far more, probably in the neighborhood of 50 million or more listens on those episodes. Joe Rogan is simply letting them speak. And perhaps their point of view does not jive with, you know, what the official or, you know, the the commonly accepted conventional wisdom of the ruling class, you know, would suggest. But you have the Surgeon General talking about how Spotify's got to do something about Joe Rogan. You've got the White House saying something has to be done about this. I mean, like urging Spotify, you need to do something, which I think always comes with sort of an implied threat that, or, uh, you know, it's like, that's a nice business you got there. It's a nice platform. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. You know, it's, there's, there's just this mafia-esque feel to, to what is being said here. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe maybe I'm just as full of it as, as your average run-of-the-mill conspiracy theorist who's out there wearing a tinfoil hat. But if the truth really was on the side of this official narrative, first of all, truth doesn't need an official narrative in order to, to stand. It never has. Deception is what needs an official version and everything else is forbidden. But I think the reason that these individuals and these organizations or institutions are so concerned and so ready to try to take down Joe Rogan is because they don't have an answer to the content that he is putting out there. And all he's doing is asking questions, letting his listeners make up their own minds. I mean, what a concept. How dangerous can you get? But if you don't have an answer to it, then I would understand why these people who think it's their prerogative to rule everybody around them would want to shut him up. Because their own narrative can't hold up. The contrast and comparison does not favor them, and they they understand this, and rather than come back at it with the idea of, look, we're here to, put the, to set the facts straight, we're here to rationally and calmly lay out the truth and let you decide for yourself, no. They want to do it by force. They want to, they want to rip his tongue out or deplatform him or otherwise banish him from the public square so that you don't have the opportunity to consider alternative viewpoints. In fact, I'm going to shift gears here for just a moment. I've got an article here from Caitlin Johnstone, writing from Australia. Let's back up and see why free speech... Let's back up a sec and ask why free speech actually matters. She says, The Joe Rogan-Spotify controversy is still going on. It's only gotten more vitriolic and intense claims that Spotify must walk away from its $200 million contract with the world's most popular podcaster for promoting vaccine misinformation have sparked a lot of debates about freedom of speech, online censorship, and what exactly those terms mean, and whether they can be correctly applied to the practice of Silicon Valley deplatforming. Now, you've probably heard this. When people are confronted with accusations of quashing free speech or promoting censorship, those who support online deplatforming in this or that situation often respond with lines like, it's not censorship. It's just a private company enforcing its terms of service, and nobody's obligated to give you a platform. Or freedom of speech isn't freedom of reach. 
Then, of course, you have the famous uh, XKD, XKCD comic, which says, if you're yelled at, boycotted, have your show canceled, or get banned from an Internet community, your free speech rights aren't being violated. It's just that the people listening think you're an a-hole, and they're showing you the door. All righty, then. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says, look, and of course it's true, nobody's guaranteed legally the right to speak on an independent online platform. But even if we ignore the fact that this censorship behavior is not being driven solely by the wishes of independent corporations and is in fact happening in increasingly close close coordination with the U.S. government, whose officials openly threaten Silicon Valley platforms with repercussions if they don't regulate speech, the fact that it's technically legal for those companies to silence voices they don't like still isn't a sound argument. It doesn't prove that censorship isn't happening or that deplatforming is okay. It just proves that it's technically legal for those giant monopolistic platforms to do those things. And a casual glance at history shows plenty of terrible things have been done that were perfectly legal at the time. She says to really answer the question of whether the increasingly widespread practice of Silicon Valley censorship via algorithm and deplatforming is a major problem, and whether an increase in speech restriction is desirable, <clears throat> we need to take a step back and ask ourselves why free speech even matters in the first place. Why is it something that's written into constitutions and upheld as sacrosanct in so many nations? Why is it a value we're told has supreme importance all of our lives? But she says any debate over online censorship is going to necessarily remain superficial until you can address this question at a fundamental level. Because otherwise, you're just bleeding noises at each other about free speech without being clear about what exactly you're talking about and why it matters. Well, I'm going to cut to the chase here. She says, in, in short, free speech matters because it's how the status quo gets changed. It's how society collectively figures out that things like racism are undesirable or that women are equal to men, that science is superior to superstition and that the world doesn't work the way we once thought it did. It's also how society figures out that a government has become inundated with excess and corruption or that status quo systems aren't working and new systems are required. And she says, here's the kicker. If free speech matters because it's what allows the collective to change the status quo, then exactly those voices who oppose the status quo, they're the ones whose speech has to be most adamantly protected. The speech of those who support the mainstream orthodoxies of the political or media class is vastly less important than those who dissent from these orthodoxies, because only the latter is pushing for change. But what we have now is exactly the opposite. If you adhere to the mainstream orthodoxies of America's Dem-Publican Uniparty, there's approximately a 0% chance that you will ever be subjected to online censorship. But if you oppose any of those orthodoxies, you will see yourself algorithmically de-boosted, suspended, and shoved further and further away from any possible position of influence. And this is on top of the fact that all the traditional media are already 100% locked down in support of the status quo. You will never see serious opponents of things like imperialism and oligarchy and militarism elevated to positions of influence in the mainstream news media or Hollywood. Every single one of these positions are consistently occupied by people who have proven themselves to be politically mute, if not virulently supportive, of status quo politics. 
So for this reason, we can accurately say free speech is already missing from our society in every way that counts, regardless of what our nation's laws may say. So protecting our ability to collectively course correct is more important than preventing people from saying things that aren't currently considered true. So important that it outweighs even the worst consequences of some people potentially making poor health decisions as a result. I can't argue with her on this. Caitlin Johnstone says, so it becomes clear that the only thing to do is to let everyone speak on the platforms that people have come to rely on for sharing ideas and information with the largest possible number of people. Now look, a great many of them will be wrong, and a great many of them will be stupid. But the alternative is shutting down the possibility of healthy change ever occurring in a status quo that's killing our ecosystem, pushing us toward confrontations between nuclear-armed nations, and becoming increasingly despotic. You know, the crazy thing about it is there's a lot of stuff uh, with which I don't agree with Caitlin Johnstone. But I think she is dead on right about free speech. And I would rather hear her speak than see her silenced. This is the Disciples of Liberty show here on the America Out Loud Network.